Welcome back, everybody. Today's going to be an interesting day. We are chatting with somebody who is not only an abduction experiencer, but also claims to have received information and some scientific data uh, of a person who isn't a scientist. And uh, Jason, I think you've heard of other stories similar to this too, right? People getting downloads of... Yeah, absolutely. Uh, there was a... I'm not going to take too long here, but there's a gentleman by the name of uh, David Hamill here in Canada that had a similar experience at the age of 67, actually. And uh, he was building a uh, uh, basically a UFO in his garage by the time he, and he was in his 80s with an anti-gravitational intention. Like he was putting all this money and effort into building this thing with uh, after having an experience. So this is not uncommon. Yeah. 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 And uh, it's just another one of our uh, angles that we're approaching. It's been a long, busy week. I know I had a long week. Oh, it's been long. It's been a it's been a long week. They were doing four yeah. recordings. We oh mentioned a few months ago that yeah. we were booked into the summer. Uh, we actually are. In fact, uh, yeah, we may have to take a month off, Jay, and just I, I just recuperate. Go on vacation. You go on but, the spa. But before something. we do, we need to learn how to build a how to build a flying saucer. Absolutely. And today's yeah. guest actually authored a book called How to Build a Flying Saucer. Very cool. Not as out there as you might think. Very intelligent man. Uh, we'll be right back with Mr. Michael Allens right after our intro music right here on UAP Studies Podcast. Welcome back to another episode of UAP Studies Podcast. My name is Louis Borges. Joining me as always, my best buddy, Jason Gilmet. How you doing? I'm doing good. It's been uh, it's been a long week, uh, like I explained in the intro. It, uh, it but I'm I'm happy to be here this weekend. Uh, we got some for the listeners. Actually, Louis and I are recording four interviews this weekend, so we're we're busy boys. Um, a lot of uh, a lot of good stuff is coming on the podcast. Really good guest. And today is no exception to the rule. And uh, Louis, I'll let you introduce our guest. Yeah. So um, you mentioned earlier before we started recording here that I tend to be more the science-minded guy into the quantum level of things. And you're more wanting to know about the abduction phenomenon and interaction. And today's guest kind of lives in both of those realms. As a result of one came another. So uh, very exciting to chat with our guest today, Michael Allens, uh, the author of two books, uh, we'll explain a little bit about those books, and uh, it's a unique position. Not a lot of people uh, can say that they've received this type of information, um, so we're looking forward to a, a good show. It's going to be a fun day, so welcome to the show, our new friend, Michael Allens. Hi, uh, it's great to be here. Thank you for having me. Yeah, thanks for being here. So um, a lot of people may not know about you unless they've read your books, uh, so let's get to know a little bit about yourself, kind of what happened, and uh, how did that lead into your uh, now authoring and the things you're writing about? Right. Uh, it's, it goes all the way back to the early 80s. Uh, throughout my early childhood, uh, I remember being abducted uh, by aliens uh, from a bedroom uh, fairly regularly, all the way up to about age 30, mid 30s. Uh, I think it was like 2008 when it stopped, just suddenly stopped. Uh, in that time, um, I had very broad range of experiences uh, with lots of different entities. Um, some of the experiences were absolutely terrifying. Um, I mean, literally some of the worst experiences of my life. And some of them were just amazing, just brilliant. Um, it's it's crazy, but uh, I feel like I've met 
uh, quite a broad range of characters, uh, non-human characters, which is quite strange to say. And uh, from all those experiences, um, I feel like I've garnered some information. Um, how I've garnered that information, I'm not exactly sure. I, I feel like it's it's come from like an altered state. So it's it, throughout my life, I've been trying to dip into my experiences. I've I've been regressed uh, three times, and I've spent quite a lot of time using meditation to try and just dig deeper into the subject. And from that, those that work, I feel like I've um, uncovered some really rather um, unusual information, which uh, I've tried to share. Uh, the, the the strange thing about me is I really hate talking about this subject because uh, it's at the end of the day I want to live a normal life, uh, and I've got two kids, and it's um, it's kind of impossible if people know this truth about you right uh so it's yeah it's a bit strange for me to actually you know get this information out there because i really feel a strong desire to do so to actually get the information i feel that i've uncovered out into the public um and that's why i wrote my two books and that's why i'm here today <laughs> so let's start with your first book i believe that was alien revelations mm-hmm yeah. yeah. So kind of, you know, not to give the book away, we obviously think it's a good read. Everybody should uh, take some time out of their day to to delve into it. But tell us a li little bit about what it's based on and what kind of information you were getting. OK, uh, well, it's uh, the book opens with my early abductions uh, from early childhood, because growing up with it, it's um, it's really unusual because at the time I didn't really have a uh, handle on it at all i didn't know what was happening um in fact the there's an experience that keeps bringing me back you know every time i start thinking i might be delusional or just lose my mind or i just try and shelve the whole subject there's one memory i have that just keeps dragging me back and it's uh when i was about i think i was about six or seven maybe around about that time so this is in the early 80s. I'm, I'm 46 years old uh, right now. So we're probably talking about 1985 or six, something like that. And I remember being laid in my bed and um, hearing a voice in my head. And at the age I was at, I just thought, this is just normal. This is like having an imaginary friend. Because back then, it would just, you'd see things like that in the media. And um, I just thought, oh, I've, I've, I've acquired a friend. So I was just talking to this voice in my head. And it was, it was, I can't remember how it all started, you know, the conversation. But I remember it asking me, would I like to see a spaceman? Um, and at the time, I was like, yeah, yes. And then I thought, well, what if it's scary? So I started sending it like, you know, um, you, perhaps if you look like an Ewok, like from Star Wars, or there's another character, like a Muppet kind of character from like... like you better be cute type thing. Right? Yeah, exactly. Exactly yeah. that, yeah. And it was like, just just come and look out your window. And I was like, okay. So I climbed out my bed and I whipped open my curtains and hovering just on the other side of the glass outside my second story bedroom window was a grey with its arms spread wide, just sort of looking down at me. And I remember just being absolutely instantly terrified because to me, those almond eyes, the look evil to me, it was like, you, 
I don't like a frown almost, if you know what I mean. So I just thought, monster, you know what I mean, instantly. And at that moment, the memory just stops, uh, like I'd been knocked out or whatever. And I remember waking up the next morning and uh, knowing I'd seen something, knowing I'd seen a real creature, but not really knowing what it was. And because I was so young at the time, I thought maybe it's some kind of owl or just some kind of animal I hadn't yet come across. Because I was so young, I just thought maybe it's just some part. Because you're still learning about like things like lemurs and crazy animals that you've never seen before at that age. You, you still feel like there's more to see and learn. So I remember read, going through all my mother's wildlife books, looking for this weird creature that I'd seen out my bedroom window. And it's that reaction that keeps grounding me to the fact that like, this really definitely happened. Because I remember all those events afterwards, like researching this thing and not knowing what the hell it was. And then not actually realising what it could have been until 1995 when I first started dipping my toes into the subject of alien abduction. Right. And yeah, and it's it's that sort of loop of events that just keeps bringing me back in because it's like, I can't just dismiss it. It's that definitely happened. That was definitely outside my bedroom window. And if that was true, I've got a ton of other memories from just, you know, throughout my childhood and throughout my early 20s that sort of follow that same pattern. And also seeing the same kinds of things in the early hours of the morning, just waking up and seeing things in my bedroom. And uh, yeah, sorry. Yeah. So, Michael, um you've had these instances like you said it was 30s by the time you stop having these experiences yes 2008 okay so yeah. from a toddler age to the age of 30 you're having these experiences and the thing is there's a lot more complexity behind this than you can possibly mm. explain right there's yes. tons more uh, mm -hmm. and i understand that um have you noticed a change in the dynamics or the interactions that you were having with these entities? And what I mean by that is some people say from an early age, so toddler years to being kids, they usually have a more positive experiences with these entities or so almost considered friends of sorts. Then mm. it changes throughout their, um, their teenage years where there's more sexual uh, reproduction experiments and stuff like that done on them or at least investigations then it turns into a full-on nightmare uh, when they grow up to be adults uh, for me it sort of became I mean it was always terrifying having the, the thing is when you see one it's probably the most terrifying experience because there's something about seeing something that's sentient intelligent probably more intelligent than you that's completely not human and it's in your environment it just mm -hmm. it's instant paralyzing fear even from a really young age uh when i was uh, i want to say 13 is when it started turning towards you know the sexual kind of interest and surgical procedures and things like that um which i didn't really no fully until I was I want to say 18 when I had my first hypnotic regression because the experience in particular that I'm thinking about um it was when I was staying at a friend's house uh it was out in the countryside in the middle of nowhere and um I remember in the middle of the night um being let because 
we were sleeping top and tail because we're like teenage boys, obviously having to share a bed and, uh, you know, sleeping top and tail, fully clothed with, with our street clothes on because obviously, you know. We'd, we've um, all done that in the 80s, right? 80s yeah, exactly. In the we've 80s all done that. Yeah. yeah, you couldn't have it get out that, you know what I mean? Yeah, exactly. Yeah, Shut so... your mouth. You don't tell anyone. Exactly yeah. that, yeah. <laughs> um, so, yeah. Um, at the time, um, I remembered waking up uh in the early hours of the night feeling completely violated complete like something terrible has just happened and i had this weird sort of um how to describe it um desire to hold on to a memory it was like i had this feeling that i was about to lose something and i was struggling to hold on to this memory and what i retained was the image of an upside down train carriage in the sky and a glass elevator those are the only two things i could get hold on to visually in my mind and but i remembered being completely just emotionally just completely distressed um i also remember i i realized i was laid not top and tail next to my friend and i was just like totally freaked out so i jumped out of the bed well slid out of the bed as carefully as possible and um, I noticed my trousers were like half up and I was completely exposed and I, and my buttons were all long. So I remember sorting myself out and then getting back into bed the right way around, not knowing what the hell had happened. And then uh, flash forward probably seven years, uh, I sought the help of a hypnotic regressionist uh, in my area. The subject of UFOs had just exploded in like the early 90s. And there was a an organisation called Bufosk, uh, British Research UFO, something Cheshire. I can't remember. It was something like that. And it was uh, headed by a guy called Eric Morris, uh, who was a naval nurse who picked up hypnotic, I don't know, techniques while he was in the Navy. And he got us interested in the subject and he was just going around the area. You know, he, was, he put an advert out in, I think it was UFO magazine at the time with a phone number just saying, you know, offering the services as a hypnotic regressionist. So I called him up, he came around. And first thing I want to know about was this, just this upside down train carriage and this, you know, uh, glass elevator. So we, in the regression, I couldn't believe how visual it was because once I was under... As soon as I started just remembering the events in sequence, I it was just completely clear. I could see it all uh, as it was. Uh, so what had actually happened is in the middle of the night, I saw a shaft of light come through the curtains uh, and I saw shadows on the other side of the window and these creatures came into the room. It was all kind of blurry because I couldn't really focus because at the time I was completely paralysed. I remember being taken through the window flying up to uh, a cigar shaped object that had windows along the bottom so already i've got my glass elevator and i've got my upside down train carriage right and as we went up um i remember being led into a uh sort of it's it, i mean the, the first room it was like a cylindrical room and it had like a conical ramp so it was like i came up through a manhole kind of thing i was dragged to the side uh, led up this ramp down a corridor and into a it was like a um, operating theater um 
I'm being laid onto it. I remember them taking uh, something from my rib cage, so in my side, and then after that, there's there's a bunch of procedures, really unpleasant. Uh, I remember a needle going in the back of my head. That was absolute agony. And I remember seeing a being there that had uh, brown skin and it wrinkled features. And I remember it saying to me, because I remember, I can't remember what I'd said, but it was something along long lines of, of, you're not going to get away with this. I'm going to tell everyone. And I remember him saying, you will not remember this. So then that just, it, it put something in me where I bloody well will remember this. You are not going to take this away from it. And I remember after the event, when they brought me back down into my bed, um, just trying to hold on to the memories and realising that they were leaving me. I was losing my recall of what had happened. I couldn't put it in sequence anymore while I was laid in my own bed. And uh, so I, I just thought, grab onto something. So I just remembered that craft and the fact that I flew up to it. So I just thought the it's the simplest way I could put it. It was an upside down train carriage and a glass elevator, and I, that's the only memories I could retain from it. Yeah. But yeah, it's it's just it was crazy that because I had those two images in my head for all that time, and it just in context it just made complete sense. And the feeling of violation. In fact, I was so angry, I was fighting them off while they were trying to dress me, and that's why when I ended up in in bed, I was just completely, yeah. basically half naked. But yeah, it was just it's it was crazy to me at the time that it was just and also just seeing it in the regression, just seeing, you know, having it all confirmed, just you know, seeing them like face to face, like close to me as right. like, you know, a teenager. And it was just it was just madness. And and Michael, did you have any smells or is there any smells that sort of trigger anything for you? Yeah, there's a few. Um uh, wet soil, you know, freshly dug soil. Yeah, and also cat litter. Okay. Uh, yeah, it's a stale. The ammonia soil. smell, I guess. Eh? Yeah, and a bit mixed in with a bit of bo. <laughs> we uh, yeah. heard that from James Fox as well, right? James okay. Fox mentioned mentioned something like that. So, uh, witnesses smelled something very similar to that ammonia, and uh, the wet soil is not uncommon. It's uh, okay. that or wet pavement that's been really, really hot, like during summer. Uh, triggers something in people as well yeah 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 and a um, bit like hot radiators as well there's a tinny edge to it that's where i get the wet soil from because it's like a metallic tang i, I think it's, it's ozone like... you know that smell when you get after it rains yes. in the spring for the first like five minutes it's a strange and it doesn't last because ozone's not a stable molecule but um or people they they do it to their car if you have a car that has an odor you can't get out yeah. they use an ionizer or like an ozone machine and it uh, literally changes the chemistry of the smell. So a lot of people do have these similarities mm. of ozone and ammonia, uh, oddly enough, for whatever reason. But uh, yeah. that makes a lot of sense if it's if you're in an electrically charged environment yeah. as well. Yeah. yeah, exactly. Yeah, like the smell of like a like a neon sign going on. It gives off kind of mm. like a tinny. You know, you know exactly what it is, right? But yeah. Uh, but I wanted to ask you. You mentioned earlier in the show that throughout the course of the years of having all these experiences, you've met a whole wide cast of characters, you know, Yes. maybe elaborate a little bit on that. Okay. Who were some of these creatures and kind of what were their characteristics? Right. Well, I mean, the main one in particular is the brown wrinkled entity that I mentioned just a moment ago. Uh, he's really striking in appearance. He's got quite a long neck, quite muscly neck and his head's huge. Uh, shaped like a hat and it's got a trench running down the middle of it. And 
like bone spurs sort of like connecting and i remember when i first visually remembered it as a teenager i just thought i must have made it up because it looks too much like it you know the klingons in star trek with with the ridges it was a bit like that but like mixed in with like other science fictiony kind of characters um because it had the the bug eyes it had a flat nose with uh two like slit nostrils uh and quite prominent bony features um smaller eyes than the greys uh but still quite large with thick eyelids um i've I've drawn him loads it's because he's he's visually quite striking and it's actually quite hard to get him wrong when you're drawing him he's a he's a repeated figure for you he is absolutely yeah uh in fact the strange thing is every time i see him for the first time well throughout my childhood i'd be terrified because he looked almost desiccated like a uh a mummy <laughs> like dried skin and it was kind of brown um but actually throughout the experience by the end of it it feels like i'm with a friend because unlike the greys he it feels like you're talking to a human with him because uh, right. it's more it's it's not audible but it's you hear it in your head kind of thing okay whereas with the greys it tends to be a lot more visual so it's almost like there's a bit of audible quality, but they send you images a lot more, like flash images. And um, but he he had a weird sense of humor as well. Like um, <laughs> there's one occasion where I met him. I was in a it was a weird kind of classroom environment. It was almost because I was led into a room, and it just looked like a classroom on Earth. Except it was it stuck in the nineteen fifties because it had the weird desks with the attached chairs and the lifty lids and the ink wells, which I had not experienced at this age. For me, I grew up in the eighties. It was all like um, plastic coated wood and you know plastic chairs. Um, and I remember when I first saw him, I was absolutely terrified and just he he just totally threw me back. And he put the the words in my head literally why are you scared why are you so afraid this is a huge opportunity you're meeting a you know a literal creature from another world uh what the hell's wrong with you and then he started just sort of insulting me just calling me like stupid monkey and things like this and um it was just um his insults were getting sillier and sillier and as he insulted me i started getting angry i'm like just you brought me here, you know, it's not my fault. And I remember just shouting back at him, just just shut up, you brought me here, or something like that. And then he started laughing at me. And then as he was laughing, I started laughing. And then he, the way he, he, he explained it to me was, um, your fear is like an egg, and I can't get you out of the fear. You have to do it for yourself. Right. So literally, all I have to do is provide the right environment to actually bring you out of your own fear. So... I took you from fear to anger and from anger to humor. And now we can talk like equals. And as he explained it to me, I was like, this, this is a remarkable creature. Cause it, it, it worked. It was it, the psychology of it just made complete sense to me. And I think it was, he's kind of helping you from behind almost. Whereas it's because the idea of laughing after I've been that mad seems a bit wrong, but he's, his humor was so infectious it just sort of brought me up into it so it's like the push the guiding you from both ends so it's like there's the physical 
reality of it, but there's also a deeper connection going on. And it's it's sort of the way they communicate. It's you sort of partially in their heads as well, if you know what I mean. Yeah. So you sort of feel it's a weird two way streak. But yeah, it's um, so the same. Uh, they there's a female grey, which um, she, which I'm, I'm kind of scared of more than of him, because um, she just looked like a normal grey but taller. Slightly smaller eyes, um, and she'd wear a hood, but she wouldn't say very much. Um, but um, she did use she, any painful procedure, she'd get me to look in her eyes and okay. she'd black me out. So she was the one that sort of did that kind of thing. But because she was a bit more mysterious, I kind of, you know, and creepy looking as well to me. Um, yeah, she gave me the heebie jeebies. Yeah. Um I've seen mantises, I've seen giant reptilians. I've uh, yeah, there's quite a lot. Um weird little snake looking dudes. Um yeah, quite a lot. Uh, but, have you ever seen any humans? Not that I can recall. No. Um I think I've encountered hybrids, but no humans. Okay. Was there ever any communication in terms of where they were coming from, any particular star system or any kind of biological explanations of why they all look so different or anything like that? Yeah, a little bit. Um, from him, I got uh, his homeworld, which is a snowy, icy planet. Uh, it's the cities, they live in these circular cities that I think it's, I think they have stable populations. So basically the populations don't rise or fall. So they have these, set circular cities and then nothing no like little countryside no suburbs no nothing like that it's literally yeah. everything's contained um they they build weird follies as well like they're like a, there's this one city it's in a mountain and it's a shaft and then around the shaft there's these buildings and in the middle there's a bridge that goes halfway across and then there's a tower suspended at the end of this halfway bridge so it looks impossible but it's just they like playing with gravity. Uh, so it's the, the build these impossible structures that they look old to us, like almost like monastic or medieval, but they defy, defy gravity as well. There's another one where it's like a wheel and it's got four bridges that extend from the outside. And then there's a weird temple like structure just suspended in the middle above the city. Um, yeah. And one of the reasons that they look alike as well is uh, I'm pretty sure that they're all offshoots of the same species. A lot of them are, not all of them, sorry. Um, so basically when they colonise a world, rather than terraforming completely a planet, they adapt themselves genetically to mm. adapt to the planet. So they end up looking completely different. But it's your all... process, right? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Yeah, because it's why try and why wipe out life that might already be there uh, to, I don't know, plant your own food and things like that. Because, I mean, you know, if we landed on a, an alien world, we probably wouldn't be able to process the proteins on that world or, yeah. you know, the, the back, you know, the, the, the slightest bacteria might completely wipe us out. Yeah. So rather than wipe out life that may already be there, you just adapt yourself. Yeah. So, you know, if the hybridization is a thing between species, which I'm really skeptical about, but if it is a thing, I'd imagine it'd be quite a useful tool if you was having to adapt to 
of uh, why are you biospheres. why are you skeptical about it i'm curious to hear your thoughts i just think genetically and chemically um just the odds of being able to because what uh, an amino acid to us might do something completely different to a completely different species because chemically we might even be the same chemicals, but the way they're organized and the way they're structured might be completely different. I just think the possibilities, the there's just, just too many different, you know, iterations of biological life in my mind. I think, you know, the, the old argument that, you know, why would they have two arms and two legs? I think that isn't a very good argument just because I think it's a very useful shape to build cities and technology and things like that i just i think obviously you know thermodynamics produces the same solutions to entropy it, uh, over and over and over and over again so it, it, you know it's um the same you know this crabs there's you know in the sea there's so many different species of crabs that are absolutely not related it's the same solution just keeps popping up to, yeah. to life at the bottom of the sea it, i think it's something like that you know, but i think you know the ability to genetically splice two completely alien species just it doesn't make sense to me i just can't see it you know so i might be completely wrong but that makes sense if you're trying to breed like an elephant and a mouse right they're so far apart Mm. it's not going to work but what about slight mods or people that have reported that they've been abducted some genetic material has been removed and then paired with some other perhaps more closely related material hybridization right yeah, hybridization, or it's like a genetic boost somehow. It's an upgrade. They're just slightly tweaking it. I mean, the difference between all the dogs in the world is less than 1% of their DNA, right? So it doesn't take much to affect massive change. So mm. it wouldn't have to be on the polar ends of it. But um, yeah, like this just, it seems like a common theme in so many abduction cases that I, there's genetics I it, involved. I do think there's, because uh, on my last regression, um, I did, I get I've got some information that I don't really like much because I, I it's it's too specific and it was that actual the greys themselves aren't actually aliens that they, they are augmented humans that have been augmented to live in space and they're the ones that are hybridizing they're not hybridizing they're rejuvenating their own genetics from old stock our stock so basically in the regression, I was told that we actually had contact with aliens. Um, our first civilizations did have open contact. It was one way because basically we didn't have the technology to, you know, go to them. Yeah. But they had the te- technology to come to us, and um, basically, uh, there was a cataclysmic event. And to preserve the old culture, rather than keep the contact of culture on Earth, we took them out into space, and gave them the job of uh, basically watching out for life on earth, basically preserving us. The whole thing, I hate it because it sounds so science fiction, but but the information I got was earth was discovered millions of years ago by a completely different alien race, an ancient alien race that basically realized that life on earth would never advance to sentience. The reason being that we're in a singular uh, a monostar system. We have only one star in our planetary system, and the problem with that is after the accretion disk, you know, collapses into planets, you've got a lot of junk 
yeah. in your in your solar system asteroids and comets and things like that and over time you get asteroidal or comet bombardment on all the planets in the system so that life while it can get a hold um will you know have these terrible cataclysms that will just keep resetting the clock so you don't have a big enough window to actually reach sentience on your own. Without... And that's happened five times throughout history. Yeah, There's been exactly, five yeah. major extinctions of, yeah. of global extinctions, right? So the message I got was that sentient life tends to develop on binary star systems because in a binary star system, what happens is that all your uh, elliptical, long elliptical objects, which are the ones that cause the problems because as they pass through asteroid belts and things like that or through planetary orbits they that's when you get all your problems because these are fast moving objects that basically cross and intersect stable orbits and that's those are the the things that keep getting lobbed at us within a binary star system basically anything that's on a long elliptical orbit gets starts interacting with the other star because the, the there are you know um you've got two large masses in mm. this system and basically it either um it ends up just I, I don't even think it does hit the star i think it literally just gets fired out into space or uh, i don't know uh it, so because of the gravity it, it, it in these binary stars is that why yeah it basically destabilizes the orbits of elliptical orbits because you vote it diverts them rather than going on a big loop over gives the planets more opportunity to have longer life cycles exactly well, right yeah exactly yeah so basically you're um your climates are more stable over a longer period of time, and that's how sentience develops. So our star system, it's it it can never do that. Oh, every you know million years or so, we get an asteroid or comet impact that resets the clock. So basically, these ancient aliens, if you want to call them that, uh, uh, trademark. <laughs> um, <laughs> basically, the found the species most likely to develop sentience and they accelerated the the them uh genetically to actually de develop culture and civilization um and then i don't know how or why but i think you know the graham hancock younger dryas impact theory and all that nonsense right. basically which i don't i don't like this kind of stuff because it's too star trek <laughs> But um, uh, that whatever that was, why it happened, how it happened, I don't know whether we pissed them off or what happened. But basically, we did get reset, and that was the point when open contact ended. And the message I got was a number of humans were basically taken off world to live out among the stars with the technology and the the gifts uh, that that they were getting from the actual aliens and that's who the greys are and that's why they want to rejuvenate their genetic stock and that's why they're you know doing all the hybridization things like that it's not hybridization it's just resetting it's it's medical intervention if you will yeah we uh spoke with uh, dr paul masters and he's got a, a theory on extratempestrial model which is kind of like what you're talking about which is you know people from the future or and you know future descendants that are coming back and 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 doing this uh, the complexity of not only the abduction phenomena like what i've always been fascinated by is that you know people say they're in these crafts which you think 
cost-wise, not just materials, but just the way that they manipulate the materials to make these crafts and just we're blown away by these crafts, right? But imagine mm -hmm. what else they got going on, right? What else they got up their sleeves? Like it's amazing, te amazing technology. But these crafts have these rooms that are designed to have a human lay down on a table with medical devices that are made to do whatever it is that they do to us. Mm -hmm. uh, that is a major venture. Like they build a craft with these operating rooms in them. And mm -hmm. that, that means there's a purpose there and it's a mm -hmm. serious purpose. And this is a theme that we we hear quite a bit, uh, you know, that the people are brought into these rooms or separate rooms, even uh, Betty and Barney Hill went to separate medical rooms inside the same craft. Mm. So this, you know, for me has always been uh, something that I look for the details and what people say, because it's important. Uh, we find commonalities to it and start saying, you know, uh, and we, we mentioned this before, it's either there's two possibilities. There's no third. There's no fourth. It's two possibilities. Either one, it's a new mental illness that mm -hmm. millions of people across the world are experiencing similar, you know, experiences and similar patterns, and but not, not all the same. They all have their differences. Mm -hmm. Or it's actually happening, right? Yeah. So there's just yeah. two possibilities to this. Uh, like I said, there's there's no nobody's on drugs. We have people. Um, from all walks of life that have, have been like, you know, even people inside the defense department for crying out loud are experiencing the same thing as you are. So it's huge. It, it doesn't uh, exclude anybody. It's not particular to any specific person. They're all just randomly selected. Yeah. But then there's a spectrum of data as well in that it's like even my own data. I, I question it and it's coming from me. Like, right. you know, the, the, that last regression, because it, it, it felt like a seance. It wasn't a normal regression. It was it was like I was having a dialogue with them in the room. It, it was really weird. Um, but because it, it wasn't as concrete as my first regression, I'm almost ready to dismiss it. But the thing is, I mean, that's me and myself. That's my data that I'm skeptical of. But then you've got other people that I believe are genuine abductees but I also think they might have gone off the rails at some point, you know, yeah. started believing that they're Jesus or, you know, things like that. So it's, it's a really hard subject to actually just, I don't know. It, it's hard to get people to take serious because it's so, it's so wacky in parts, you know what I mean? So it's like, cause I really like, you know, like, you know, um, I, I, I like the science, you know, I like the, um, you know, I, I, I like things to be concrete. And the thing is, for me, I feel so much shame around this subject. My kids don't even know that I've been through any of this. I've kept it a closely guarded secret. Uh, my wife, actually, she would like to talk about it sometimes. But when she does, I just go, no, nah, no, no. Because it's I feel like I lose so much credibility just talking about it. You right. know, it's like it's even like to the, your own uh, spouse, though, Michael. Yes. Yeah. Oh, really? Yeah. Even, even then the thing is, is what, when, cause we've been together since the nineties, um, when she was there for me, when it all started coming out, she was, she wasn't there for the regressions, but she knew they were happening and things like that. And then the last regression that happened, she walked in the room, uh, because she finished work early. Uh, not the last one, the my second one with Eric, uh, and she got to her some of the details and it absolutely terrified her. 
because basically what she realized that she was in the room when I was getting taken away. Uh, in fact, in one of the regressions, um, I actually remember trying to wake her up and not having a voice. Literally, really strange experience. A grey had entered my room and it, because every time I see them, the one that every time, but most of the times I see them, they paralyze me. And uh, it's, it's really, I don't know, oppressive experience. But during this particular experience, one entered the room, messed with my paralysis. So I could feel waves of sort of like, the grip of it if you know what i mean uh i could hear sounds that would like change in tone you know a bit like the old hearing test you know when they they, they do the tone test so it's similar to that but not quite and i could see strobing lights and they would like change in frequencies and things like that the thing did all this and then just left so as it left uh i sat up and saw my missus and uh, i thought i need to wake up so i tried to say in a name nothing came out so i had full control of my body but no voice and um so i just started trying to ah, you know make that kind of noise nothing's coming out and then suddenly like a switch noise started coming out and then she wakes up she's like what's up and i'm like oh nothing i just had a nightmare and she heard this during the regression because what i actually remembered uh, at the time was i remembered my cat coming into the room me being completely paralyzed and then the cat leaving uh, but then when I sat up, the cat was sat on my legs, <laughs> so it didn't leave. It was it was there all the way, but it it did, I, which is weird because I've heard that animals are sensitive to these kinds of things. But it was completely oblivious, apparently. Um, but yeah, she heard all this, and then she was terrified at the time. So then I learned to sort of keep it to myself, and that became a habit where I don't want to talk about it, if you know what I mean, because it's yeah. it, it's just a case that I didn't want to scare her. I didn't want to drag her into it. But I also, at that time, I really wanted to explore it more. So I just sort of kept it from her. And now when she asked me about it, I'm like, no, no, you're all right. Because it's, it, I think over the span of 30 years, it's just become so much easier just not talking about it, just keeping it to myself. So, right. Yeah. yeah. And I but wanted yeah. to ask is, do you have a theory on why you, or why it was repeated? Or, you know, like what, but I want to get into your second book as well. Cause I find that yeah, very fascinating. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Before we get into that, just cause I know people are going to want to know what, uh, yeah. So uh, what was it again? The question, uh, why me? Sorry. Yeah. Um, uh, I, yeah like is it generational? Out, Anybody else in your family? I think it is generational, but I think specifically, I think it might be genetic because I did a DNA test. Uh, my missus is quite into her ancestry. So she put one I think it was Christmas on my birthday, I can't remember, but she got me a DNA test kit and it came back and it's the most boring, you know, when you get the map and it shows you where all you, your family's from and where you spread, literally the UK, nowhere else. So you're a purebred. Just a blob. I'm, yeah, yeah, but also completely vanilla and boring. So, but I think if you are harvesting genetic material, a good base of data so you can say that, you know, it's because if you've got a mongrel animal, you know, and you take the DNA from it, it's probably quite hard to figure out, you know, what goes where, with the, you know, with the ancestry and things like that. I think with me in particular, I think I am because I'm so boring. I think literally I make a good donor genetically. You know, it's I think it's quite useful because it I don't know, maybe I, I literally I, 
I've no idea, but I do think that's got something to do with it. Just because it was so surprising when I got that map and it was just a blob and it was the UK. It's literally right where I live. <laughs> See, I'm afraid to do that test because I'm afraid it's all going to point to the same house. No, but good point, though, on being very kind of lacking mix. If you look at like yeah. RH negative blood type, the mm -hmm. predominant area for that is in the Basque region of Spain. So why mm. just a very small amount of people have a particular blood type that doesn't mix with anybody else's blood type anywhere else yeah. in the world? It's very yeah. rare. I mean, there are people that have more rarer bloods than others, but to have such a high population all carrying. And I mean, even pregnant women have to get tested for RH negative because essentially they could reject their own baby if it is of the other blood type. Yeah. Right? Oh, really? so it's a real thing. I remember my wife doing the test when we were pregnant, like, you know, uh, well, I should say when she was pregnant, I was the mm. emotional pregnant guy, but, but yeah, the RH negative is a real thing. And uh, genetically there is a small portion of people that have that. And they, nobody can really explain why, why that specific blood type is so much unlike all the rest. Right. So there is maybe something to that small space uh, having some significance. I don't know if this has any significance, but I'm at the opposite end of that. I've got this blood that everyone can have. I don't know. I can't remember what it's called. Is it own? Like a universal donor oh, type yeah. thing? Yeah, I'm one yeah. of them. Yeah. yeah. I can't remember what it is, but yeah, I've got that. So that might be useful as well, you know, yeah. for taking blood. Yeah. It yeah. Mike, Michael, I've got two final questions about the abduction stuff, and then we'll move mm -hmm. on to the uh, second book. Um, okay. So have you had any ill effects or any ailments? um develop over the span of your life because you think it's related to these experiences oh uh, i did I, I have the faintest of scars on my rib cage when right. the, you from the one that i got regressed you know the big surgical one okay and i did wake up one morning with a completely swollen earlobe and blood on my pillow and then for about a decade after that i had a lump in my earlobe just it was just a tiny like a little ball bearing which uh eric me regressionist the you know the ufo researchers like you have to get that taken out go to your doctor tell them you've got something in your ear you need it taken out and i was terrified and i never did and then it dissolved it just seemed to get smaller and smaller and smaller and it disappeared um other than that not really because i know um because I, I did have some interactions with kim carlsberg and i know she had a lot of nosebleeds and things like that of that nature which she associated with an implant in a nasal cavity, but um, yeah, nothing, nothing like that. Okay. Um, yeah. And then the uh, the second question was because this might be something that follows your family line. It could be mm -hmm. that you know dates back quite a bit. Um, most people come to grips with it or start talking about it in our generation. It seems to be more prevalent. We're like, hey, wait a minute, something's wrong, something's off. Um, are you worried at all? Because I know you're not talking to your kids really mm. about it, but are you worried that this might pass on to them? I did, really did, very much so, especially when they were young. Um, I think that's why my abduction stopped, because I think I was dealing with the experience very badly once I had kids. Gotcha. Because it's one thing to have an intruder in your house when you're just you and your girlfriend or wife or whatever. But as soon as you put kids in the picture, mm -hmm. you, I'm a feral animal. I just, you know, I can't, you know what I mean? It's, um, and I think I had some, I mean, there was one where um, they actually used my son's voice to get me to come to them, which did not, that, that scared me. Crossed the line, right? Really did, yeah. yeah. Um, 
my son, when he was about four, he he started. He might have been younger than that. He might have been two or three. But basically, when he graduated from a cot to a bed. In fact, I think it might have been when he got his own room. Um, he started coming into mine and my wife's room and just sneaking into bed with us. And at the time, I was working crazy hours because I was working in a bakery. So I just, I was, I was looking up solutions online and things like that. And basically what I came up with is if you reverse a door handle, you know, the turny, you know, the long handles, if you swap them, the front from the back, or is it you turn it upside down? I can't remember. But basically what happens is you have to turn it up rather than down to open the door. So I did that. Uh, and it worked because uh, he, he came to the bedroom, you know, rattled the door handle. And I just said, ah, uh, you know, what I, mean? and I was like, I got out of bed, led him to his own room and he had a good night's sleep. Thank God. And I did too. And from then on, he never came. He never did it again. But then I forgot. I, I just couldn't be bothered changing the door handle back round. So a couple of weeks after that, um, I woke up in the middle of the night and I could see bright light coming under the door uh, uh i was completely paralyzed so i, I woke up paralyzed like it's just sleep paralysis because i do suffer both and they are fairly indistinguishable mm. uh so i just thought it might be sleep paralysis but then i realized there's lights coming underneath the bedroom door and i could see shadows moving around i'm like no oh no oh, no, they're here and panic starts setting in and then the door handle rattled and i'm like okay that's weird and then the door handle rattled again and I'm thinking, well, what if it is? What if it is my son? You know, and um, I started thinking about, you know, am I a terrible parent just laid here when my son's at the top of the stairs, potentially could fall down? I didn't think this through because what if I had sleep paralysis while I was trying to open the door handle and start panicking that way then? And um, the light disappears, and I just hear, dad, dad, you know, literally the exact same words I heard when he first came into the room. So it's like they literally plucked the exact audio recorded in my brain and played it back at me. So then I'm like, it's okay, it's okay. And I jumped out of bed, opened the door, and then there's three greys on the other side of the door. And the last thing I remember is the front one just putting his hand in my face and blackout. And I was just, I was furious because they're not, only, not only were they in the house with my kids, but they'd use my kids to sort of get to me. And I was stunned that I couldn't figure out a door handle. Yeah, why did they just float through the door? Yeah, well, no, actually, I do think uh, there was a reason for that because at this time in uh, this period of my abductions, there was finding weird ways to get to me. Like one of the ways he actually got me to sleepwalk into my living room before they revealed themselves. Um, but I, I did get the message that I had a huge conifer tree outside my bedroom window. And I, I I remembered the brown fella saying to me, you really need to cut that tree down. It would make things a lot easier if you cut that tree down. And I think for whatever reason, I do, like they probably can pass through organic, organic matter, but I think it might leave a trace. And I think that's why they couldn't do it. So they're having to get me they was having to go into my garden and come through my house to get to me. So on the occasion after that, they actually got me to go downstairs into my own living room, open my curtains, and they told me to look at a specific spot in my garden. 
and I couldn't the nothing there. I'm like, there's nothing there. And so no, no, look again. It actually I say they said this to me. At the time, I thought my cat was talking to me, which because I was in a I was in a semi-dream state at this point. Basically, I remember waking up and hearing my cat in my head saying to me, Go downstairs, there's someone here to see you. I'm like, what 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 are you on about? And I, I remember going downstairs in this fugue state and my cat telling me, open your curtains, look in this area of, the, you know, your garden. And I'm like, there's nothing there. You, you, you got me out of bed for nothing. And no, no, look again. And I looked again and they appeared. It was it was like a special effect. It was like they colour filled in. It was like there was nothing there a minute ago, but it was like they would always been there. Part of my brain always knew they were there, but they just sort of appeared, like filled out like smoke. And I remember snapping out of the paralysis, snapping awake, then snapping out of the paralysis and battering on my living room window. I remember running to my, uh, my dining room, opening, you know, struggling to open my back door, running out into the garden. And then I don't remember anything after that. But I did realise a couple of days afterwards, my back door, I, got, I actually got into trouble. <laughs> my wife was like, why has this back door been left open? Not only left open, un- unlocked, it was literally open. So literally that night, whatever had happened, I hadn't obviously re- reclosed or relocked the door and it was just flapping in the wind. And we hadn't noticed for days. So I was in it at that point. But it was, it was just all around that time. It was a case of, because what they'd usually do, they'd come through my bedroom window. So it was literally, I'd wake up power lace, they're in and then I'm out and it's all done, done with. But while I was living at this one house, because of the layout, they had to find weird ways to get to me. And that's around about when my abductions actually stopped because I think I was misbehaving quite a lot. I mean, literally banging on my window, screaming profanities. At too them. much work, right? Yeah, you literally. Too much yeah, work, I think, yeah. Yeah, I was a bad customer. Yeah. yeah. So do they always come in threes? Yes. Uh, the, the ones that come to get you have always in threes. Okay. Always. Yeah. For me, I don't know if that's everyone, but for me, always in threes. Now let's uh, get into the nuts and bolts aspect, which is my man's. <laughs> yeah, uh, I love the title of this yeah. book, How to Build a Flying Saucer. Mm-hmm. So right off the bat, I'm sure people have a field day. I'm sure you've got comments like, how do you know? Nobody knows. UFOs aren't real. There's a million and one skeptic questions that can come. But let's talk about what's in the book. I, I find it fascinating. I, I find it's plausible. If you are, you know, people that have encounters have reported ESP and sort of like telekinetic messaging. So why not a big download of information of very high level scientific things that you maybe would not have known any other way. So tell us a little bit about the book, uh, what kind of info you got and what is what you wrote about. Yep. Uh, sure. Uh, to be honest, I don't know when I got the information, but I know it was there. The way I knew it was there is because... It, it, this started in 1996 when there was a TV show called Future Fantastic. Uh, it was because it was Night of the X Files, and it was hosted by obviously Gillian Anderson, who else? And literally, she was basically outlying science fiction concepts and the kind of work that was going on that would lead us to those uh, futures. Uh, and basically, the one that triggered all this was one on propulsion and there's a little segment of it where they talked about a guy called Thomas Townsend Brown, who was a scientist in the fifties 
who was researching something called electrogravitics. Um, I remember watching the show and they were showing archive footage of his apparatus and how it would work. And basically, if you looked at it now, you'd say, oh, it's just a ionic lifter. So basically it's generating, it, it's ionizing the air and generating a, a polarity, uh, electromagnetic field so that the charged air particles have been magnetically attracted and that's what's lifting the thing. But the, there was something about it that I recognized and I couldn't for the life of me figure out what it was. It was it was just this weird switch in my brain and I just thought, I know what that is and I know how it works. And but and the thing is the the stuff in the video, I think it was probably an ironic lifter, but the shape it had and the arrangement it had, it there's another way to make something like that work using actual gravity. And so I did a bit of research and it turns out that uh, the inspiration for his electrogravitic apparatus came from observations he made on uh, an X-ray tube called a, a Coolidge tube. And basically the way it works is it uses uh, an anode and a diode, the I can't remember which is which, <laughs> it's embarrassing, but one of them's tungsten, and the, I think it's the anode that's uh, just a, a piece of wire. And basically what it does, it creates a huge differential between the two charge points. And what he was doing, he was overcharging them, and he observed that it moved towards the, the diode, I think it was, uh, the positively charged side, uh, and it... it if you if you put it on a pendulum, basically it would move towards one way, and he thought this might be an indication of uh, electric uh, electromagnetism and gravity being link interlinked. So basically, he spent his whole scientific career trying to uncover this phenomenon and make use of it. Um, but what I realized uh, is it. What it's actually doing is when you create a huge charge differential, what you also generate is a lot of kinetic energy. So in the positively charged side, which doesn't actually, it's not the side that's holding the electrical charge, it's the opposite side. It's, you generate a lot of motion, a lot of movement. And when, like, with... um. Like E equals MC squared, when you convert, when you get close to the speed of light, basically you, you increase in mass. There's more than one way to move. Basically, you you know, you can move in a straight line as, you know, uh, we understand, you know, if you, if you move close to the speed of light, time slows down and you increase in mass. So you, you get heavier effectively. But you can also move by oscillating, by vibrating. Um, if you take any object with mass and oscillate it fast enough you generate the same effect you generate more mass but you do it in a, it's a tiny amount but it's it's constantly changing so what you're actually doing is you're generating waves uh gravity waves just because you, you're effectively taking an object and increasing its mass and decreasing it rapidly and what that does it generates a kind of wave if you 
I mean, I could go into the complete breakdown, which is what I see you'd be doing here. But basically, if you take the same model, the same object that uh, the apparatus that Thomas Townsend Brown had and make some minor tweaks, you can basically get it so you've got a gravity wave generator. So you've got your, your uh, positively charged terminal of your apparatus and you've got your negatively charged terminal and your positive charged terminal is generating a, a lot of kinetic energy so in the form of vibration. What's also happening is because you've your negative terminal, uh, the kinetic energy is actually moving towards and away from the negative terminal. So it's actually moving in a straight line. So it's 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 generate it, it's amplifying the effect. And also if you use the right kinds of materials, you can get it all working in lockstep together. So basically you're generating all this kinetic kinetic energy. If you go to a high enough frequency, you can generate gravity waves. And if you shape the whole thing into a um parabola like a bowl um you can get those waves to combine and focus on a single point in space when you do that you generate something you generate something that doesn't occur in nature naturally you generate a linear gravitational field and once you've done that basically your whole apparatus apparatus sorry is literally sat within its own gravitational field separate from any other field around it and depending on how it's orientated it'll either generate an area of space that's got that you can reverse the gravity on or if you have it orientated so the point is pointing towards the earth the whole thing becomes weightless itself the apparatus itself becomes weightless and anything within it is only uh feeling the effects of the generate the gravitational field generated so which should be really useful for a craft you, you, right. you know, it's you wouldn't it's be very much like what Bob Lazar said, right? Essentially it, creating a bubble is. or something less affected by the normal physics we would expect. But my question about all this is sorry, it, I went it, off on a tangent there. No, no it's no okay. It's, that's totally it's, fine. Yeah. It's a lot. And again, reading the book would obviously make a lot more sense than we have yeah, this diagram time for here. <laughs> yeah, but um uh, you know, we chatted with Dr. Gary Nolan a little while ago. He's talking about metamaterials mm. potentially creating a waveguide. So it's the material themselves or the propulsion system. But my question to you is, why is this not more out in the open? If it is simplified enough that we can discuss it on a podcast, why don't we see this everywhere? Well, the thing is, to actually do it, you have to go, from an engineering point of view, if you was going to build a capacitor with a huge electrical charge, you wouldn't make it out of a very thin material because obviously it would degrade faster and fail. But... To make the most out of this effect, you want the maximum amount of surface area. Uh, uh, you want it as thin as possible. So basically, it's really easy to control all those oscillating atoms. Um, and you'd want it spread over a large area. And in science, there's no reason to do that. No one would ever do that because obviously it would fail. Uh, speaking of the metamaterials, they're perfectly arranged to actually work with this concept because basically what you've got is you've got a very thin... Um, semiconductive material uh, separated by a resistor. So basically, if you alternate positive, negative, positive, negative, positive, negative in the wafer that you've got, uh, and also the extremely thin layers, you will get the maximum effect of this 
you know, atomic oscillation. I think it's literally what the hulls of these crafts are made out of. I think it's why they glow. I think it's why they ionize the air around them. Uh, I think it's why they shape the way they are. Um, I also think it's why they behave the way they do, why they define gravity. Um, I also think it's why they come in the, I mean, all the shapes are constructed of prab parabolic shapes like a tic tac a cylinder a sphere an egg a disc an egg yeah, yeah exactly uh also your triangles have three orbs three you know con parabolic shapes uh, on each corner and quite often one in the middle as well um also um, even the weird ways that behave like the the fallen leaf pattern that some people have observed yeah, yeah. works really well if you are just using a single amplifier so basically you don't want to just turn it off because if you do it's going to fall and also to build up the charge necessary to generate the effect I, it probably takes time because it, you sort of it's like a tuning fork you're trying to get the right frequency for it to work so to descend if you don't want to come down really, 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 really slowly by just slightly lowering your gravitational field, a good way to do it would be lower it, but also move forwards so that uh, you, your gravitational field's offset and angle downwards. And then basically what's going to happen is over time, aerodynamics and just... It's like a spinning top. If you think about a spinning top that's slowing down on power, you know, as it powers down, it wobbles. Yeah. So basically, what's happening is the disc itself is wobbling on its uh, focus point as it's powering down. So as it's descending, it's flipping up at in in a sort of falling leaf kind of pattern. Because I always thought. Yeah, I always thought those were the new drivers, you know, like the, oh, the people be. that just started flying the crafts. Like, as you wouldn't give them a big mission, you know, the first time that they're operating, it would be, okay, let's take it easy. Let's go park over there by the trees. Uh, I think, I think it's know. also the guys in the cheaper cars as well, you know, the ones yeah, that exactly. don't have the reversing cameras or whatever. Yeah, yeah. But, um, the, I mean, uh, there's something else I want to go in. Oh, Bob Lazar as well. Because um, a lot of what he says makes sense. If you've been studying this technology, but not quite understanding what you're seeing as well, mm. because because in his descriptions, basically the waveguide of the craft emits gravity waves, which cancel out gravity. So basically the waves are going up and that's canceling gravity coming down. But to me, that's like a wave using a wave to try and reverse a flow of water. It's not going to work. What I think has happened with that particular craft is basically you've had a lot of scientists looking at it coming up with various solutions to what's actually how it actually works and actually getting it wrong and i think the reason we don't have this technology with us today is because they've basically put, put it all down to this mysterious element 115 which converts into antimatter which generates weird gravity waves which they think emits from this aerial shape uh but actually, what's actually happening is all that antimatter in element 115 is doing, it, it's, it has two purposes. The element 115 is really good for focusing the, the gravity amplifiers in the base of the craft, which I never actually wrote about. But it is basically what you do with that is you have a stack of amplifiers 
you have the element 115 actually at the focal point of the amplifiers and then you pull it and what that does is it sharply bends the gravitational field because it it's like sort of like a needle and thread just sort of pulling that focal point and what that actually does is it creates almost like a, a very narrow beam of gravity at the other end so that's why the element 115 exists it's not to generate the entire gravitational field but what they've basically done they've seen these materials that cannot be replicated on earth and just gone yeah we can't really use this device because if we do we're going to run out of the materials and therefore i think they've shelved it but what they've not realized is actually the hull of the craft because all that that antimatter is doing is just generating power so the converting 115 which is also used to focus the amplifiers they're using that to convert to antimatter and then they're using that to generate electricity and that is being used to power the hull because I mean, the fact that the thing glows like this it, and also is designed, clearly designed to hold a massive electrical charge, like the fact that there's no sharp corners within the craft. There's no other materials other than the the, the steel that it's made out of. Right. Uh, it's There's no point where you're going to get electrical arcs happening because it's holding this massive electrical field. So basically, if you're in this craft, because you're charge is the same as the craft around you you're not getting shocked it's like so a it bird on a wire he doesn't exactly get that unless he was touching the ground at the same time exactly that and basically what it's doing is it's, it's charging up the hull which is actually the engine which is why when the roswell wreckage was recovered there was no signs of any engines or power plant or things like that because the power plant would have been really really small by bob lazar's description it was just a basketball sized thing yeah and basically there's no engines because your engines are actually a hull it's if you think of like the sails of a ship it's, it's you know surface I mean? it's area exactly that exactly that um so and i i think there might be i think they might have realized since then how this stuff works because there's these patents that came out where it clearly is that it is the hull it is the craft itself that generates the field because if you actually look at the really really vague and low resolution these patents but they clearly know what they're talking about but i think back in the 80s i think they had no idea i think there's they're still thinking it's like you need dilithium crystals and mm -hmm. antimatter to make the the what reactor work so therefore yeah we'll just put it on a shelf until we can like open trade and maybe or make with particle accelerators the right isotope of element 115 to actually make the whole thing work but because that's not happened I, you know but I, I do actually think now since then they have figured it out but at that time i think bob lazar was really there i think he, he he's absolutely telling the truth mm -hmm. but i also think it was bad science that it was reporting on. It was just well, well, limited science because I mean, keep in mind he was it was 1989. Mm -hmm. um, they didn't know what they were doing, and you know when exactly. you read his book, you realize that they hired him. He sought out a gentleman that got him the job mm -hmm. at S4. He was like, "Hey, do you have a job for me?" He had no idea that this guy was going to put him in the middle of one of the most groundbreaking event in human history and, and trying mm -hmm. to re reverse engineer these crafts. Um, but they thought, man, this kid thinks outside the box. He put a freaking yes. rocket engine in the back of his, uh, was it a Honda or something like that? Like just crazy. And like, you know, he was able to think outside the box. He's not, he, he's never proclaimed that he was like the world's best scientist, but he was, he knows enough science 
like you mm. know to put like a freaking particle accelerator in his garage if he wants to like he's he's that freaking smart like he'll build stuff for george knapp we were talking to george knapp and he's like george was complaining about some a fan or some sort of you know air conditioner oh, i'll build you one and he just mm. build him a unit and send it to him like the guy's freaking smart um but limited limited information back in those days and yeah like, you know like i said i don't think it's his fault i think he this is just it's the textbooks that he was reading that was wrong basically mm -hmm. it's, it's the science that's been done through the 50s to then where they've just they've got it wrong like thinking because i think what the waveguide actually is i think it's a deionizer because basically if you want to depower the craft you need to you can't really earth it so what you need to do is fire off ion, ionized gas to lower the charge of the whole craft so basically straight from the reactor you just shoot plasma out through that it's basically an exhaust and that basically depowers the craft, and that's why that waveguide's there. It's, it's like not... a blow-off valve for the extra exactly static. that. Yeah, it's like it's like the whistle on a steam train. That's yeah. all it is. But they've decided no, that's the whole engine. Yeah. That's the thing that gives it anti-gravity. It's not at all. If you look at the whole shape of the thing, it's obvious what it actually is. Um, and the way the way it worked for me as well is as I sort of try to uncover it, I kind I could feel what was right information and what was incorrect so i'm not a scientist i don't have an education in this at all so basically what i've done is i've, I've looked in i've looked up basic electromagnetism books and things like that and I've, I've just tried to just follow the trail of breadcrumbs and that book is the result of what i've come up with so it's probably riddled with mistakes but it's my best attempt with the information that i've got and i think basically what's happened is I've received this information while I've been abducted. When I've not had the mem the recall, I've not I don't have the memories of these events, but I still have the information that I've retained. That it's it's almost like a gut feeling. It's like I know what's right and what's wrong. So when I saw Thomas Town Townsend Brown's apparatus, I looked at it and I went, I know that I know I know how that works. I don't know how I know and I don't know what i know at this stage but i know it's focusing something i know that that shape is really important and i know it's focusing something i don't know what it's focusing or how it's working at this stage but over the years i was able to just put the pieces together and that's what i've come up with and it's my best attempt but it does really work really well with just sightings in general like yeah. even crop circles because if, you, if you've got a, a point 90 degrees from the outside surface of your craft where it's the whole craft is pivoting on this point. So all that gravitational force is focused at one point. If you dip that into a, into a cornfield, it's going to flatten the stalks. Mm. Not only that, the whole thing's ionizing the air around it. So the, the, it's like they're in a microwave. The, 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 the water inside, you know, it's, is oscillating, softening the stalks so that when they bend, they stay bent, they're not breaking or anything like that. It's, and it all works. It's the whole thing. If you, if you just put the whole model, you know, next to the observed, you know, sightings and things like that, it works. And I've not been able to find one yet that breaks the the whole theory, if you know what I mean. Yeah. Like even Travis Walton. Uh, yeah, Travis Walton. Sorry, I thought he had another name there for a second. But no, I think what he came upon was a guy trying to start his engine and his mm -hmm. craft. I think that craft, for whatever reason, whether it was the atmospherics 
uh, remember there was, it was too humid, but I think they'd lost a lot of charge in the craft and they're trying to power up to leave. And he was too close is, to it. Yeah, exactly. So he was hearing all these odd noises. He, he said he could hear clanging noises. And I think that was, there was literally trying to tune the oscillations of the craft itself to generate enough kinetic force within the actual skin of the craft to actually generate the, the field that they need to take off. Mm. And he got too close because obviously it's having to power up. It's having to electrically charge the entire outer skin of this craft. And I think because of the humidity or whatever, I think it was hit by a stray arc of electricity, which kicked off the whole event. He's got a, you know, his event is amazing because it's the first one that I know of that his life has been or a life has been actually saved by these entities because mm. he recalls it now as being more of a rescue mission. He got too close. The charge came in. He got, you know, basically injured. His friends left. They weren't just going to leave him there. So they helped him out because he said when he woke up and the, the painting behind me is kind of like the Travis Walton experience. Like he woke up with ah, pain okay. in his chest and uh, he, by the time his eyes were able to focus, he noticed three little entities around him. Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, they, they were trying to rescue his life. Like he said, like the whole time that he was on the craft and all the stuff was happening, his chest was killing him because of the yeah. charge. Um, so he's got a fascinating story. I think your, your story is fascinating as well, uh, Michael. I know that it's difficult to come out and talk about this. And, and Ooh, yeah. um, obviously now it's out and we got several thousands of listeners that, that, will um, listen to this and I, I deeply encourage uh, the listeners to to follow Michael um, on his social media he's on Twitter Facebook Instagram as well and to purchase the books I mean uh, you're you're a rational person you're you're sane uh, when we talk to you you're not Hope crazy so. you're not yeah well you know what these, <laughs> these experiences are insane but you are a sane person just going oh, through insane you. experiences um, Louis do you have any final questions for our guest today no I think it was uh, again it's a difficult topic to breach because of the amazing claims, right? Like mm. having these experiences, getting this information. You're not the only person to have had similar experiences. So it's not like you're going against the grain, but it is a rarity. We don't hear it very often. Um, you know, uh, again, I have a bit of a science mind. I liked your theory on why these things glow because they're ionizing the atmosphere around them. It makes a lot of sense. I often wondered, like, we wouldn't know a plane was flying by at night unless it was flashing. So if they didn't want us to see them, and in some cases it appears they don't want us to see them, but yet they still light up. And I just thought that's so stupid. Like it's either mm -hmm. a light or a craft. Why would they not? But it makes yeah. a lot of sense that it could be the craft itself or, yes. you know, I'm a big Formula One racing fan. If you watch any of the nighttime races they have, you see the rotors on the cars glowing red, the ceramic yes. from absorbing the heat. So mm -hmm. anytime you have huge forces and huge energies going through materials, it's not uncommon for them to glow. So mm -hmm. uh, that was new for me. And uh, I consider myself pretty knowledgeable on, uh, on this type of science anyway. So uh, yeah, again, I commend you on your, uh, on your courage. Uh, I'm sure you've had your fair share of critics, people that say, Oh, it's all bullshit. How can you prove it? But it's like any abduction experience. They're less likely to care what other people think. Cause you know what you saw, you know what happened. And I'd imagine it's probably similar with you as well. you like you said, it's a gut feeling. You just kind of know and it's it's difficult to explain, but you just know. Mm. So yes, yeah. So uh, yeah, again, very fascinating. We can always do a follow up to this one day, and uh, if anything comes to you in for, if you're, you know future regressions or anything, uh, let's talk about it. You know, let's mm -hmm. let's approach this from as many angles as we can. Jason and I always do that. You know, our UFO people get mad when we talk consciousness. 
and the spiritual minded people get mad when we just talk about little grays, but we need to look at this phenomenon from all the angles. So, yeah. um, so before and, we close out, uh, where can people follow you? Do you have a particular website or any pages that you want to direct people to? Oof. Um, I can't remember any of it. <laughs> <laughs> I think, I think my Twitter's mostly Michael or it's just Michael Allen's at Mike. I can't remember same with my Facebook. Basically, if you Google me and it's a picture of the brown alien that I was talking about earlier, that's the right one. Cause I, I yeah. use that uh, a drawing that I uh, did of that guy for basically everything. So if you find that guy, that's me. And yeah. And you can find my books on uh, Amazon. Uh, I just wanted to say as well, I think uh, Travis Walton, I think he's probably the world's first case of intergalactic uh, hit and run. Because there's no insurance yeah. claims for that, right? Yeah, I yeah, know exactly. Yeah, thank God they did something about it and they're responsible. But yeah, yeah. yeah. so yeah. also, um, people can uh, look you up on Amazon, like you mentioned. Um, the books are called Alien Revelations, and the other mm -hmm. one's called How to Build a Flying Saucer A Beginner's Guide to Gravity Amplification. Uh, you can yes. also find Michael on alienrevelations.com. Uh, co.uk i'm not used to that i'm on the canadian <laughs> side i'm sort of used to dot, dot com or ca um but definitely uh you know michael uh be more vocal about this and you've done several interviews and and inter and um you know you've been on tv like i said i wasn't too happy with some of the way that you were treated in the past and i want to give you you know uh you know the opportunity to come on and talk to louie and i about this on a serious level and, and to address many things that haven't been addressed before. Um, like I said, we're big uh, and appreciative on the fact that you came on today and were able to talk with us about all this. And uh, yeah, it is, it's, it's good that people like yourselves are what's helping disclosure come to fruition. Lovely. Thank you. It's yeah. been really nice talking to someone that's actually read any of my books because you are rare. <laughs> well, you know what? This uh, this subject, unfortunately, not everybody research searches it. Um, Louie and I have been at it for a while now, and uh, it's interesting. There's a lot of commonalities. There's a lot of pieces to the puzzles um, and a lot of threads that people have said that are similar things. And it's, mm -hmm. it's building this bigger and bigger. We're getting more and more of, a, of an idea. But at the same time, Michael, I'm not lying to you. We are thrown into the rabbit hole. There's a bunch of theories out there that we have to explore because there's so many facets to this phenomenon. And it's not only the physicality of these crafts, it's the entities and the cerebral aspect, like, you know, the, the control over oneself, uh, the paralysis, the consciousness aspect. There's, it, it, it's such a complex interwoven issue uh, that it merits looking at everybody. Uh, that has something to say on this issue and and you know like i said you're logical you're rational your books make sense um you're scientifically inclined which you, a lot more than i am like you understand science I and mean, louis and yourself uh, could get along fine on that department uh michael allens i thank you so much for coming on the podcast today and uh we'll have you again sometime thank you so much for having me and anytime uh, lovely thank perfect. you perfect thank you